This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity and New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, Luke Donner from Boston University. A Spirit of Revitalization, Urban Pentecostalism in Kenya, written by Kiyama Mugambi and published by Baylor University Press in 2020, explores the Pentecostal movement's religious visions in urban Africa, more specifically capturing the story of Pentecostal movements in urban Kenya by highlighting the antecedent movements set against urban Africa's historical, social, economic, and political contexts. This monograph examines how, in their translation of the gospel, innovative leaders synthesized new expressions of faith from elements of their historical and contemporary contexts. And the sum of their experiences historically charts the remarkable journey of innovation, curation, and revision that attends to the process of translation and conversion in Christian history. While covering a century of successive renewal movements in Kenya between 1920 and 2020, Mugambi's work also focuses on aspects of recent urban Pentecostal churches and carries out a thorough historical treatment of themes such as church structures, corporate vision, Christian formation, and theological education. The longitudinal and comparative analysis shows how these Pentecostal approaches to orality, kinship, and integrated spirituality inform Kenyans' reimagination of Christianity. So over the course of our conversation today, we will take a look at this very important work, how this book takes us on an exciting journey in examining Christianity in Kenya, and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. 
to learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoyed the book and our conversations as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Kiyama Mugambi, the author of A Spirit of Revitalization, Urban Pentecostalism in Kenya. Dr. Kiyama Mugambi is currently an assistant professor of world Christianity at Yale Divinity School, where he teaches on African Pentecostalism, leadership in African Christianity, and the history of Christianity in Africa. Before coming to Yale, he taught at Pan-Africa Christian University and served as the principal investigator for the Nagel Institute's Engaging African Realities Project. Additionally, he oversaw the editorial management of the African Theological Network Press from 2018 to 2022. Besides his work at Yale, Dr. Mugambi remains a senior researcher at the Center for World Christianity, housed in Africa International University. Throughout his various publications, Dr. Mugambi's research interests have focused on the ecclesial, social, cultural, theological, and epistemological themes within African urban Christianity. His most recent publication is the book under discussion today, A Spirit of Revitalization, Urban Pentecostalism in Kenya, which has been nominated as one of the 10 outstanding books in mission studies, world Christianity and intercultural theology by the International Bulletin of Mission Research. A man of faith himself, Dr. Mugambi has served in leading administrative and pastoral capacities at a few churches in Kenya and abroad, and remains a member of the Pentecostal tradition. So welcome, Dr. Mugambi, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, before we dive straight into the book, I wonder if we can begin by getting to know you mo more about you, Dr. Mugambi. Mm. Um, do you mind telling us a few words about yourself, that is, uh, where you grew up, where mm. you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study? And if, it could, and if I could also ask, um, who are some of your influential mentors you know, that have shaped uh, your academic journey thus far? Mm. Yeah, so um, thank you so much for uh, for for having me uh, once again. Um, so I, I um, as you mentioned, have served and uh, uh, been involved in the church. Um, I'm a family man as well. I have three children and my wife. I'm a third generation African Christian. Mm. I was born and raised in Nairobi. Uh, my family uh, lived there until this uh, transition to to Connecticut, mm -hmm. and um, I was initially raised uh, an Anglican uh, mm -hmm. in 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 Nairobi. Uh, then moved uh, into a Pentecostal charismatic uh, movement, uh, and I mentioned a little bit of that story in in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to my studies, I read my PhD uh, in the World Center for World Christianity at. Uh, Africa International University under mm. uh, uh, Mark Shaw, a historian. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I would say I, I fit within the world Christianity field uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, the likes of uh, uh, the late Andrew Walls, uh, Lamin Sane, uh, who taught uh, here here at Yale. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are others who, who have uh, spoken into my, uh, into my journey, uh, into my uh, life uh, I, I mentioned, you know, people who have, uh, you know, uh, mentored me. Uh, in addition to Mark Shaw, 
uh there are others you know uh afia dogame uh mm-hmm. you know is in, you know someone that i have uh who whose work i have read mm-hmm. uh and who i have um you know has uh, assisted my my reflections or who has featured in my reflection dana robert mm-hmm. uh, as well um the other influences um a past generation of uh african theologians i think who raised questions important questions in their day mm-hmm. uh, that i feel uh have have also shaped my own approach uh to the study of christianity in africa people like kwame bediako uh john bt uh john gato laurenti magesa mm-hmm. uh, more le- recently uh obukalu mm-hmm. uh o- obukalu uh and his studies uh on pentecostal the pentecostal church in 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 africa i think for me were very 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 pivotal and as well you know kwabena samoa jadu uh two african pentecostalism scholars uh people like uh, alan anderson mm-hmm. uh all, and the three of them you know study uh african pentecostalism you know the first two from west africa and and alan anderson from uh, southern africa but then there are others who have kind of shaped my own understanding of you know framing theological questions uh, i might have mentioned uh, some of them but there are some more recent ones uh, immanuel katongole comes to mind uh and uh agbonghiamege orobato as well um you know some of his writings uh uh so those those are some influences and i cannot neglect to mention my dad uh, who's also uh, a theologian of that earlier uh earlier generation is an african theologian and an ecumenist mm-hmm. and um you know in addition to you know um, shepherding me as a child i think uh, his his writings and his way of reflecting uh, has, have also featured i feel like i have some companions along the journey uh, some of them are a little further along and then there are others uh, you know who we are working together with uh, some i would mention um uh, Tarangui, uh, an anthropologist um Derek Peterson a historian uh and uh, Wajiko Gitao of course uh, a, a world christianity world christianity scholar you know uh, these are people that we've worked with so so it's a, a bit of a village there are many <laughs> yeah well that's that's awesome you know it, it's always interesting to see what sort of voices we carry with us and and mm-hmm. speak into our work even as as we write so thank you mm-hmm. Um, I'd also just like to invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this important work, The Spirit of Revitalization. How did this process begin and what led you to writing this monograph? Yeah, so so uh, the, the work, uh, many people ask me, okay, it's your first book, so is this your PhD research? Actually, it isn't. So my PhD research was about leadership uh, in Pentecostal churches in Africa. But in doing that research, I found that there was a gap. Mm. So because, you know, when world Christianity, world Christianity has, uh, you know, three core core disciplines, there's missiology, there's history, there's theology, uh, all of them kind of meshing together. Mm. Uh, and so as I was doing my, my PhD, I found that, uh, you know, there was a very important piece that was missing mm-hmm. uh which was uh, a, a comprehensive um history of pentecostalism in kenya and it would have been nice to have a, a history of uh, of pentecostalism in east africa uh but even one of kenya was not there mm-hmm. and it it hadn't been written 
and and so I asked myself the question, okay, you know, what what where can we get one? And I began doing research. I began asking the questions. I began piecing things together from uh, my PhD thesis, and and um, you know, in the process, you know, began to fill in that uh, that gap that I felt uh, was glaring during my uh, my my PhD. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, so two two other comments. Uh, one was that uh, doing my PhD, I began to see some strands of things going on uh, with Pentecostalism. Uh, some of those strands were not had not been fully addressed in some of the other material that I saw. You know things like uh, kinship, uh, and I thought that uh, kinship or relationships between people, community that that was a theme that kept coming up in Pentecostalism. Uh, in East Africa and every, you know other places as well uh, on the continent, I began to wonder whether um, it might be something that I would e- investigate and try to see. You know, ca- can this be one of those themes that I can try and see what what is going on mm-hmm. uh, as the history of the movement forms? The other thing that I want to say is is uh, the trigger for me. Mm-hmm. The trigger for me was a conversation that uh, I had with uh, with a scholar. And and uh, you know it was a kind of a three-person conversation. Wanjiro Gitao was there. She was just uh, in the middle of a PhD. I hadn't started mine yet, and I was still you know trying to think about that. And we met with a scholar, and we had uh, a very uh, spirited conversation. Very very. Um, engaging and very robust, as some people will say. <laughs> and and. Uh, yeah, and we are debating uh, the perceptions of uh, the Pentecostal Church in Kenya and uh, the research methodologies that have been arrived at, uh, that that you know precipitated uh, that particular scholar's um, understanding. So, so that conversation, uh, when we came out of that conversation, you know, we we came out challenged. I I told myself, you know, one day, you know, I would like to write something that will. Um, fill in the gaps and correct uh, what has been inaccurate. And uh, as it turns out, you know, Anjiro Gitao published her book uh, in 2018, I think it was, and I published mine in 2020. And I think there was something good came out of that conversation. So that was the trigger. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and the whole journey it took. Um, it's very fascinating, especially hearing it from the author himself. Um, thank you so much mm-hmm. for sharing that with us. And as we begin, you know, opening the pages of your book, we can mm-hmm. see that there are a total of eight chapters, um, mm-hmm. also including a brief introduction and a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And if I can briefly highlight here for our listeners, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Mugambi's book also has a very robust bibliography that can mm-hmm. serve as an incredible resource for further studies regarding African Christianity and more specifically, you know, Christianity mm-hmm. in East Africa and about, mm-hmm. you know, Pentecostal movements in Kenya. Mm. Now, it is in the introduction of your book, Dr. Mugambi, that you provide the readers with the groundwork and the context of your Mm. study about what it is you want to accomplish through your work, and that is, quote, to examine Pentecostalism in Kenya and its antecedents taken together as a family of related expressions, and to examine how each expression is historically connected to the other with regard to orality, kinship, and holistic 
worldview, end quote. Mm -hmm. And even though the contributions of the historic mission church and the Western missionaries are all important, your work is in a way pushing back against this mm -hmm. notion that Pentecostal churches in Africa are just, you know, imitations of foreign church models they're not and that they are actually quote iterations of an indigenous christianity whose history stretches back a century end quote and it is indeed evident that you place great importance in doing this in its own local terms i i love that phrase how you use that in its own local terms valuing local sources and voices of local agents or local pastors or local people indigenous people uh, situated in kenya and this leads me to my next question, Dr. Mugambi, which is in regarding your methodological approach. You know, you mm -hmm. mentioned in the field of world Christianity, we have history, we have um, um, theology, missions, missions and, and so forth. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if you can discuss what was your research process like, you know, you know, you we see that you've turned to archives and source materials. I was wondering if you can talk more about that. And mm. I know you don't mention, I don't think you mentioned it directly, but mm. even though your main approach is use, utilizing a historical methodology, mm. you also rely quite a bit on ethnography, you know, participant mm. observation mm. as well. Mm -hmm. So how has that been also helpful in, in your work as well? Mm. Yeah, so so uh, I think the the place to begin is is that uh, you know I'm a world Christianity scholar. So mm. within world Christianity, um, history is very important. Mm. Uh, history is very very important, and uh, some some uh, projects will will be very uh, heavily historical. Mm -hmm. Others uh, others less so. Uh, but nevertheless, um, at the back, you know, like the 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 background, there's there's a historical perspective. Mm. Uh, there's a missiological uh, posture as well. There's mm. uh, there's a th there's some theological commitments mm. uh, that we have made, um, and and in in this study, you know, it's it's no different. I, I think for me, I'm coming from that that perspective. Yeah. Now, when I started, when I started, I was clear that the book was going to be uh, a history mm. uh, because that's what, what was missing. The, the history was missing. But I also realized that um, in order to be able to situate what we what we are talking about, uh, we needed some ethnographic um uh, an ethnographic perspective as well, mm. uh, because it's one thing to just talk about something abstractly, but it's quite another uh, to to situate what the, to situate the history within, um, you know, an eth ethnographic framework. The the reader needs to to kind of see, feel, hear, uh, experience uh, what we are talking about, mm. and one unique thing is that. Uh, all except, let me say, most of the the expressions that we are talking about are still there. Yeah. They then they kind of coexist uh, at the same time in the same time and space. Uh, you don't always have that gift in history. Uh, usually, movements are movements who come and they will die off. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, if we talk about spirit roho Christianity, I have experience with that. I have relatives who are in spirit roho churches. You know, so so this is uh, the, it's it's kind of a gift that we're given, and we need to kind of um, uh, 
uh, appreciate that gift even even within our scholarly work and our research. So so for that reason, you know, there was that ethnographic uh, component. So kind of you know um, allowing those to speak uh, to speak to one another. Uh, these these experiences are. Uh, uh, are live experiences and they are embedded in people's experiences. So, so we, they embedded in people's lives. So, um, I did quite a lot of um, interviews, uh, which is uh, you know historical methodology. So I I did uh, uh, you know extended interviews with people, sometimes multiple interviews with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to the churches. I've shared my own experience of being in those spaces, mm-hmm. uh, so that uh, people could get a kind of a fuller. Uh, experience. Mm. And my hope was to be able to explain those things from within. Mm. But the, the more distant history, um, you know, because it was spanning about 100 years, the active period that I was looking at was 100 years, even though I did look at uh, some of the activities, uh, you know, almost 70, 60, 70 years before mm. my start, kind of my start date, which was 19, uh, 1920. Um, so in order to be able to, to, to talk about those times, uh, I consulted archives. I consulted mm. two major archives. One was the Church Mission Society archive, mm. uh, which um, I had uh, the, the fortune uh, of uh, the privilege of going to, uh, to Ripon College in Oxford, uh, where I uh, did, did uh, more research as a postdoc, uh, and uh, CMS actually opened the archives uh, to me, and I was uh, able to access uh, those those archives. Um, that you know, an interesting thing, and this is a footnote for for PhD people doing <laughs> this, um, especially in the in the global south. It's it's um, sometimes you don't get the the material that you need. Uh, on the continent, and it is unfortunate that you have to go uh, back to the global north to find material for the global south, and and so those are some of the kind of uh, knowledge, the politics of of knowledge um, dissemination, knowledge access, uh, that that people on this side um, need to be talking about and need to be thinking about. Now, now, fortunately, CMS. Um, you know, had been thinking about ways of being able to make that material available. So it's now available uh, digitally in Africa. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a good thing. Someone, someone coming after me now will not have to go to, to Oxford uh, to look at that. Um, and then I also consulted uh, the Pentecostal uh, Assemblies of, of, uh, of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they, they, have, they have a full archive, which is also digitized. And uh, they have a whole lot of material uh, there that uh, they they made available, and I was able to access that from Kenya because they 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 made that available. They uh, they have a mechanism for that, mm-hmm. uh, and and it is a good mechanism because it allows you know people to be able to get the material digitally. So uh, so yeah, so those are the archives that I used, and I used also Kenyan archives. I used you know the Kenya Gazette archives. Um, you know, most of which are also are digitized uh, as well, uh, which you know just makes m- makes it much easier. So that's that's the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, the methodology came together um, once I had a kind of a map of the book, and and I knew this is what I need to do. I need to tell a story, a hundred year old story, 
And in that story, we have, um, I'm going to need to get information. Where do I get that information? From people, uh, from archives, uh, from observation, Mm. And to weave together that whole, uh, to weave together that whole story. So that's that's how that came together. Wow, thank you. I mean, it's fascinating to hear, like you said, that as these things have developed, they haven't just faded into history. And so you're able to use this, you know, various methodology and weave these things together. That sounds very rich. Um, you know, in the first chapter, I saw that it helped the reader to understand the early history of Christianity in East Africa, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially the work of European missionaries, and how the translation of the Bible played an integral role in the growth of Christianity among Kenyans. But in reading the first chapter, I was very much captivated by the spirit Roho Christianity that you treat mm-hmm. extensively, mm-hmm. and especially their emergence in light of the presence of the historic mission churches and colonial mm-hmm. authorities. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Mugambi, for our listeners who are new to Christianity in East Africa and Kenya, do mm-hmm. you mind elaborating more on the spirit Roho church? Mm-hmm. What does spirit Roho Christianity entail, and how do spirit Roho Christians see themselves? Mm-hmm. So, spirit Roho Christianity is... um. One of the terms that have been used for for spirit roho Christians is uh, independent African independent churches, and I think a, a good place to begin is to say uh, the, the description of those churches by um, historic mission uh, missionary church missionaries uh, they did not take they, they did not call themselves independent churches. Mm. They, they this was this was a title that was put on them. Um, and so in terms of why they are called spirit, why, you know, we chose the name spiritual Roho churches, we asked, the, I asked myself a question, what, what do they call themselves? How do they see themselves? They see themselves as movements of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so many of their, many of them, you know, the Akorino, uh, which is a Kikuyu found in central Kenya, uh, one of, uh, one of the spiritual Roho churches from, from central Kenya, uh, their official registration name is Africa Holy Spirit Church. <laughs> so they, they have um, a very vivid sense of, uh, of, of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, immanent uh, amongst them. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know they so they see themselves as christians they see themselves as uh, as movements of the spirit uh they uh, many of them almost exclusively will use indigenous languages uh for their worship uh their worship is oral they have mm-hmm. oral liturgies mm-hmm. Um, and they connect their adherence uh, to 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 their ethnic roots uh, because even the way they use the language, uh, they use the language um, in in uh, in ways that is not colloquial. So they have kind of a, like a spiritualized uh, way of using indigenous uh, languages. Um, and and um, what I find what I found unique about them is that by studying them and trying to isolate what. How, how do they see themselves and why why do they see themselves the way they do um it occurred to me that they a lot of the same concepts that they use on themselves would be concepts that you use on on Pentecostal churches because mm-hmm. Pentecostals uh today would see themselves as um would see themselves as uh, as movements of the spirit mm-hmm. and so for that reason I I make a connection between between spiritual churches uh and and the 
and and the Pente the you know modern modern day Pentecostal. And I say uh, they are part of the same movement, the same kind of stream of uh, of 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 Christian translation uh, in in Kenya. Um, this is not unique to Kenya. I mean, in West Africa, similar stories can be told, and the churches they are called Aladura churches. Again, a name that comes they 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 they, they uh, the local term for those people, uh, mm. the people over there is Aladura, and, and Aladura really is praying churches. Mm. And uh, there is an interesting story how that 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 name came to themselves to to them, which is um, uh, uh, because Aladura comes from Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means uh, you know prayer, mm-hmm. uh, or at least in that place it it refers to prayer. So this this is a term that has kind of traveled uh, from from Arabic into local languages and found its way back uh, to Christians to refer to these as uh, people of uh, people of prayer. Uh, and so it's the same kind of, of, of movement, and these movements um, in West Africa, East Africa, and even Southern Africa, Zionist churches mm-hmm. uh, in Southern Africa, um, you know, are movements that see themselves as uh, as you know Christian, charismatic, mm-hmm. uh, evidencing a concrete Christianity, mm-hmm. and they uh, they have a perception or uh, a, a keen awareness of an immanent God who gifts uh, people for ministry mm. and who uh, intervenes in their lives in real time. Mm. Mm. Now, in terms of uh, how they present themselves, for many of them in East Africa, as in West Africa, they they often dressed in, in robes, yeah. Uh, the men dressed in turban, so they they would do something unique. Mm. And in the book, I argue that uh, they see themselves as a subset of their ethnic communities. So the ethnic communities uh, are a broad community, but see, they see themselves as um, um, a representation of God's people within uh, their ethnic communities. And to to uh, separate themselves, they use dress as one of the um, ways that they they isolate themselves. They are very prolific in the music that they write mm-hmm. and their songs. Um, I talk about that in the book. Their songs tell stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the reality comes out, out of their songs. Uh, they, their songs are very rich in, in especially Old Testament, mm-hmm. uh, Old Testament uh, um, narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, they... Uh, they they are within their music. One of the big differences between them and the and the historic mission churches is that the music allowed for drums. Mm. Their music could be sung loudly. Mm. Um, their music has a different to- tonality uh, to it, so it's a tonality that is much closer to the local uh, the local tonality uh, of the music. The 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 beats, the rhythm is also uh, closer uh, to the local. Uh, way of of articulating uh, music mm. uh they collectively and i've just talked about africa holy spirit churches israel africa israel church Nineveh in eastern eastern uh, sorry western kenya the whole group of those there are very many of them david barrett uh, did uh, an extensive mm-hmm. study uh of them uh and and others also you know did some 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 studies 
uh, of, of these churches in Kenya and in East Africa. And David Barrett's study also covered all of Africa. I think in his book, he covered uh, Schism and Renewal. He covered 6,000 mm. uh, of those movements. They they were subject to suspicion and, and considered as being on the periphery of Christianity. So historic mission churches didn't actually recognize them as churches. And later on, you know, uh, for a long time, you know, the emerging newer Pentecostal charismatic churches, historic mission churches, uh, Protestant churches, evangelical churches viewed these as cults that have nothing to do with Christianity, even though uh, for many of them, you know, they will, they, they will um, affirm their faith with the Nicene Creed, with the Apostles mm. Creed, which is a universal um very uh, universal expression of uh, of traditional orthodox christianity um and so uh, to that extent if you, i i went to the archives um and and read some of their constitutions and you know their constitution uh, some of them written way back in the 1960s um you know represent a very orthodox uh, Christianity. Uh, now, in terms of uh, of the expression of their faith, in terms of what they allowed, uh, they some of them would allow polygamy, mm-hmm. uh, which you know it is debatable whether that is uh, you know central to uh, to the orthodoxy of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but um, you know, if for all intents and purposes, they saw themselves as Christians, mm-hmm. and uh, for for to a large measure, um, looking from the outside in. Uh, with what they 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 say about themselves, uh, they they really didn't need to be put on the periphery. They, however, were seen as a uh, as you know movements on the margins. Uh, the Acorino, for example, mm-hmm. um, the leader of the Acorino uh, was was killed by the the British government. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, targeted uh, because ostensibly because of the the, the growth of the movement, mm-hmm. um, and in the book I argue that these are forerunners. Yeah. Uh, they cannot be excluded in the in the history of uh, of um, spirit movements um, in Kenya or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are very important, um, especially because of their pro- prolific. Uh, evangelism efforts, and they are, they at one point were way more um successful mm. uh, in mission and evangelism mm. because they just had found uh, a way to incarnate the 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 message uh, the christian message mm. in ways that uh, local people could hear and in language that local people could hear yeah. mm. well thank you dr mugambi for enlightening us um on the spirit roho christianity and how the spirit roho christianity christians themselves uh see themselves um this is very fascinating and i think this is a great segue into um thinking about you know this spiritual movements christian movements taking place uh throughout east africa throughout kenya as well um as we take a closer look in chapter two it provides us uh with a up close look at the pre-independence kenyan christianity so we're still thinking about movements and there's several movements that take place you know from the period around 1930s to the 1970s mm-hmm. as you feature some important turning points as well um mm-hmm. such as you know the east african revival and mm-hmm. the student movements you know which take place um you've extensively cover uh these 
to um, you know the East African revival and the student movements throughout chapter mm -hmm. two. But I was wondering um, if you could shed some light more on the East African revival. You know, when did this revival begin, and how did it differ? You know, we see a little bit, not a little bit. We see a difference uh, between you know the spirit of Christianity, but you know what was different uh, with the revival, and you know what kind of impact did it have uh, on Kenya and throughout East Africa as well. Yeah. So the East Africa revival started, um, depending on how you look at, uh, you know, how one would look at it, uh, started either some people say in the late 1920s mm -hmm. um, or early 1930s. Um, but generally in that period, it really was a revival movement that started uh, with some Ugandans primarily in Rwanda. Mm. And... Uh, Essentially, it was a movement in Uganda and Rwanda. It was a movement within the Anglican, uh, within the Anglican uh, denomination, mm. and it was, uh, you know, some Africans, um, or largely driven by Africans, who were um, kind of re re responding to responding in a spiritual way uh, to the nominalism that they had begun to see in the in the faith. And so this this revival, um, you know, spread uh, as people say, like wildfire. It's it's fascinating to look at the archives and see what the missionaries thought. Uh, some of the missionaries uh, saw this as uh, the this was what we'd been looking for. This is mm. what we wanted. This is you know, there's revival. You know, the, the Holy Spirit has broken out amongst the Africans. Others, uh, well said. You know, this thing, the, this thing isn't Christianity, and the, mm. you know, these people don't respect authority uh, because the revivalists were very bold, mm. and if if they felt that uh, uh, Anglican priests. Uh, were not committed in their faith, mm -hmm. uh, then they called them out and they said, you know, uh, we 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 don't, you know, if if they found priests, for example, drinking alcohol, they'll have you know a problem with that. If they found, uh, if the priests could not, uh, with bold confidence, um, proclaim their own salvation, uh, they said, well, these these are you know, half-hearted Christians, and and they they would call it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they were seen to be, by some, to be disrespectful uh, of Christian authority. Mm. Uh, so it started in the 1920s, in the 1930s. Um, it it arrived in Kenya in the late 1930s with the number of conventions. They would have conventions, mm. uh, you know, in different places. They had convention uh, in Kabete uh, and several several of the mission um you know, mission stations, uh, uh, you know, all over, mm. uh, all over the country. And so the renewal spread in that sort of way through uh, the, uh, uh, through especially institutions of learning. Yeah. But a unique thing about, about the East Africa revival is that they saw themselves as renewers mm. of historic mission Christianity. Mm -hmm. So to that extent, uh, they never left their churches. They 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 went to the churches. And in Kenya and Tanzania is quite unique. You know, in Uganda it was largely an uh, uh, largely not not exclusive, but largely an Anglican phenomenon. Mm -hmm. In in Kenya it was pretty much all all the historic mission Protestant churches. You know, they 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 were there amongst the Presbyterians, the Anglicans. 
uh, they were there with the with the Methodists uh, as well, some Lutherans, mm. uh, and reportedly there were some Catholics who are revivalists as well. Mm. So it saw itself as as a revivalist, renewalist movement within historic mission Christianity. Mm. Uh, in Tanzania, there were some Lutherans as well. Um, you know who who went to that. The 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 movement itself was not monolithic. So so there were some sects within the East Africa revival that were very, um, you know, kind of very militant, kind of radical mm. uh, in terms of their their expression. Uh, so so uh, we have subgroups like the Bazukufu, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who who uh, you know had had uh, you know a, a little bit more radical edge to what they were doing, but largely they saw themselves as renewers. So so they conformed to historic mission Christianity, historic mission forms. They went, they sent their children mm-hmm. uh, to historic mission schools. My grandfather was was an East Africa revivalist. He sent his son to uh, to a, a school, um, you know, mission school. Um, and, and so there was that kind of trajectory uh, with with uh, his with spirit Roho Christianity. They broke away. They they yeah. didn't see um, they, they they didn't feel that uh, their expression could be accommodated within historic mission Christianity. And the missionaries would never have allowed it. Yeah. Uh, the missionaries would never have allowed it um, if if such a moment uh, did did exist, uh, and so they, you know, created a completely new experience uh, by themselves, uh, and and it operated with its own modalities and was closer uh, in terms of language, closer in terms of form, and a little more accommodating. Of uh, some of the contentious uh, issues of the day, uh, two of those uh, uh, um, polygamy, mm-hmm. and uh, number two, the the uh, rights of passage yeah. for 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 women, mm-hmm. and the rights of passage for women was a highly contentious issue because uh, the especially the 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 European missions uh, insisted that rights of passage. Uh, uh, rights of passage experiences for for women needed to be stopped because of uh, uh, you know a genital operation that would happen at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it was done differently in in different communities, um, but but um, the the missionaries have none of it, and so they uh, they urged that the right of passage experience in total uh, mm-hmm. would would be uh, removed. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, that presented a, a problem because um, you know within society rites of passage are the ones that kind of create a social order you know so that after rites of passage women can be married mm. uh, and so that was not uh, that was not well processed uh, in the translation uh, effort so uh, that's another big difference you find spirit roho Christians. Um, made an accommodation for rites of passage for women, especially. I mean, for both men and women would go, uh, but but for the women, um, if they went for rites of passage and they finished with that, they were ready to be marriageable. Then they they did not see any need for them to go back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the boys could go back to school because then you know it was, they were going to be breadwinners and so on. So the kind of the the structure kind of remained. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the social familial community structure kind of uh, was maintained, so it's spiritual churches. Not all of them, uh, but many of them 
uh, made an accommodation for that. Uh, I wouldn't say that it was constitutional. I did not see anything in their constitutions that say that that stipulated their women, for example, had to go through those uh, those rites of passage experiences. Uh, but they made an accommodation. They also made an accommodation for for polygamous people to attend the service. Historic mission Christianity uh, had all sorts of uh, solutions to that. That um, you know, in hindsight, while while poor solutions um you know so so people who are polygamous were encouraged to um to desert all the wives and leave one mm -hmm. and so and and the selection of which one you know was uh you know it, it was uh you know up in the air is very haphazard uh, some people say you know you know leave the last one others will say the first one is the real wife others will say the christian one is the wife what if you have two christians you know <laughs> uh and the you know the lack of process uh in that and and the, the, the failure of translation of that you know caused the spiritual house churches to be different now uh the revivalists on the other hand were monogamous mm. Uh, they they were monogamous. They were very cosmopolitan. Many of them married across ethnic communities, spiritual churches. People tended to remain within the same ethnic community, um, and you know they didn't take their girls for uh, for the rites of passage experiences. And so for that reason, you know their their, their girls went to school, uh, you know, and went into a, a institution of higher learning. Um, and so, you know, from my own life, for example, you know, both my 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 parents, uh, the uh, the the girls, the you know, my mom and mm. you know my aunties, uh, were able to go to school. They were able to, mm. um, so so that so those those are kind of fundamental uh, differences. Now, with time, with time, spiritual churches uh, now most of them are. Are uh, you know are conformed to to monogamy, um, and uh, some of them still do a rites of passage experience minus uh, the 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 genital operation, mm -hmm. um, but but uh, but they kind of maintain a, a social structure and they have some of them have modernized, uh, but so those are the you know some of the differences, um, you know kind of like the major major differences uh in the time what is interesting though is that the the, the east africa revival kind of uh, faded with time um and in the book i argue it was a kind of metamorphosis into student movements yeah uh because a lot of the same language a lot of the same uh, ethos that was in the east africa revival uh, kind of translated into the student movement, mm. um, and so that the, the 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 East Africa revival, as it was then, kind of faded, and and now we have student movements. Uh, but spiritual churches are still there, so it kind of the spiritual churches kind of lived the 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 East Africa revival, which you know is an interesting um, is an interesting historical quirk. Uh, there, one would have expected the older movement should have ended, and you know it kind of was fixed in the ethnic yeah. uh, times, uh, but it's still there. Mm. Wow, well, that is fascinating. I mean, it's really interesting to think about, you know, how these different groups um, have approached some of those questions differently, um, and also just the ecumenism of the revival sounds very, very interesting. So, thank you for that. Um, and following Kenya's independence in the early 1960s, we see the emergence of new indigenous Christian movements. 
Um, in your book, we have the opportunity to look at the newer Pentecostal charismatic churches, or the NPCCs, which blossomed from the previous East African revival and the student movements. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Mugambi, could you talk a little bit more about the NPCC? What is considered central in their theology, and what role does orality play in the NPCCs? Are there any unique aspects within the NPCC's worship service that you would like to highlight for our listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean it's an interesting phenomenon, um, and and again, this, this is a phenomenon happening in all all, all of Africa. Um, very diverse movement in Kenya. There's also a, quite a bit of diversity mm-hmm. within the movement in term chronologically, but also in terms of expression at at any one time. Um, and for me, that's that's an area of fascination for me. And and uh, my my next book project, one of my next book projects, is really to examine that a little bit more. Yeah. But uh, for the purposes of this discussion, let me just highlight a few things. One one of the things is that New York Pentecostal Charismatic um, churches have a very vivid understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. in their lives in the now. So their pneumatology is very concrete, uh, very, um, uh, I'm going to say, it's, it's very, very, very um, alive, you know, in their, in, in their, in their uh, experience. And their pneumatology will come out in every aspect of, of their worship. Uh, God is present. God is ready to act in the now, ready to act in the uh, circumstances of uh, of the individual, of the community. Uh, they tend to be urban or have an urban uh, perspective around them. They are cosmopolitan. Uh, they speak multiple languages. They they um, they use whatever. Uh, modern method of communication that they can find um, within the scope that they are in. The very small churches will use their sound systems and they will, uh, you know, kind of create their their worship experience. If there is, they, they'll you try to use instruments uh, for their worship. Unlike spirit roho churches, for example, which would use the drum and so on, revivalists. Uh, were also fairly itinerant, so maybe they would use a guitar, uh, but hardly ever use drums or uh, the organ. Uh, Pentecostals, you know, embraced electronic music instruments. They embraced, um, uh, they embraced technology. They are pragmatic in the use of technology, uh, and so, you know, they they the churches will often own. A sound system. They often will own uh, a generator to go out and do missions in different places. Uh, they wrote their own music, just like Spirit Roho churches. Uh, uh, revivalists tended to use hymns and to translate hymns for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did write their own music, but by and large, revivalists, you know, the the East Africa revival song to Kutenderesa. Um, was actually, um, you know, a translation of a hymn. So, it, I mean, it, but it's been owned so much uh, that you know people feel you know it's an East African song. It actually was a was was a uh, Luganda translation of, of of an English hymn. So, uh, Pentecostals, on the other hand, neo Pentecostal charismatic churches, you know, wrote their own music. They mm. 
Mm. Uh, they played their own music. They went out there. Many of their pastors were musicians and mm. evangelists at the same time. Um, they they for many of them in especially in the 1980s into the 1990s they had live translation, live mm. inter- interpretation uh, of the sermon. So the sermon took twice as long <laughs> because there was you know one person saying the thing and the other person, and oftentimes you know the preacher himself would have been mentored by an interpreter and so the preacher himself can interpret and so uh instances were not uncommon where you'd find you know the preacher the interpreter the young interpreter being you know someone under training when he interpreted a particular word and the preacher would say no no, no that's not what i meant i meant something <laughs> different so so but but then everyone takes it in good stride because these are orally delivered um yeah. sermons uh they they there is a um a sense of of God being at work in the moment. Mm. So so yeah. So that, that those are some thoughts of Pentecostals. One last one that I want to say is that they they were very cosmopolitan in the sense that they they because of that interpretation and being in urban centers, mm. they uh, um, accommodated people of different ethnicities, mm. and so many of them will be very very diverse in terms of ethnic representation as opposed to historic mission churches which were launched in particular places so if if you're talking about uh, methodists you're likely talking about meru if you talk about sda you're talking mm. about kisi if you're talking mm. about uh, anglican you're probably talking about uh, luo or kikuyu if you're talking about catholic you know you'll talk about uh maybe people from the coast or you know kikuyu so so the historic mission the, the historic mission stations were in particular places and and there's a historical reason for that which we go we won't go into right now but mm-hmm. uh but pentecostals you know bring in people from everywhere um the question does does beg you know how that f- filters out of the church into life um you know within uh, within the Kenyan setting, uh, because you know, especially during election times, people are very polarized um, in terms of uh, ethnicity. Uh, but but um, I think by and large, that's a unique feature of Pentecostalism uh, that remains up to today. Well, thank you, Dr. Mugambi, for that insight, especially on the newer Pentecostal charismatic churches. It's very fascinating. Um, and I really enjoyed that chapter as you delineate um, some of the details about, you know, their various aspects and worship as well. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're already heading into the latter half of your book um, in which you talk about catechisms, a word um, we don't usually hear in reference to Pentecostal practice, but it's very fitting. Um, you artfully and concisely traced its history from the early church to the Reformation and beyond, which provided a helpful context for understanding new approaches to discip- uh, discipleship and teaching in Nairobi's you know, Pentecostal churches of today. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on what is distinct about the you know, emphasis and approaches used by Nairobi Pentecostals, you know, informing their members. And is this impacting how congregations beyond Africa shape uh, their members as well? Mm. Yeah. So um I I think I I wanted to use the term catechism provocatively there because um the uh, catechism yeah, has, does have a very specific literary history. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, and and uh, within uh, within the Christian world, um, the term has also been used um, kind of to exclude the other. So so the people who do catechism are the Christians, and then there's everybody else. <laughs> uh but but i use the term broadly because throughout history catechism has been used uh, is the process by which people are socialized into christian faith and if we use that broad uh category then there are things inside there that then need to need to be interrogated because of uh the uh, the epistemologies within which they go. So, for example, spiritual spiritual churches might not use, uh, you know, a two or three hundred page document to extract uh, to extract a, a catechism, mm-hmm. but but they socialize their people uh, through oral methods where people learn the Nicene Creed or learn the Apostles' Creed by by memorizing it from when they are children. And so they don't read anything, and but they'll they'll say it, and so they they have internalized it in a certain way, and so there might not have been a formal literary catechism mm-hmm. like the one I went through when when I went uh, for for my Anglican uh, catechism, mm-hmm. uh, but one which which is um, one which fits uh, the local worldview and epistemology, and that counts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it counts. I think when we talk about world Christianity, uh, you, we have to be, um, we have we have to to understand that uh, modes of Christian transmission and expansion, as Andrew Walls uh, would explain them, uh, will be different for for different communities, uh, and they'll use different. Um, uh, they'll use d- d- different formats and different. Uh, uh, language, cultural language, to with which to use that. So, in terms of uh, catechism for for Pentecostals, a number of things are going on in there. Uh, the Pentecostals will use the sermon. Mm. Uh, the sermon is an important part of 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 that process because, uh, and and the sermon, a number of things is going. It's uh, are going on. There is a uh, there is a preacher who's uh, kind of mediating. Um, the the conversation, teaching them about Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1980s and 1990s, this for those who could hear two languages, it is repeated. You hear the sermon twice in one sitting, mm-hmm. um, and so that is a. Um, I, I mean, for 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 oral people learn in you know by repetition in oral communities. So mm-hmm. so that that way of learning. Um, within the sermon, that's a very important one. Another one is prayer. Mm. Um, Pentecostals are people of prayer, and and every moment is a moment for prayer. They they spend a lot of time in prayer, and pr- prayer happens a little differently than, for example, historic mission experiences where uh, prayer in Pentecostal churches, you have someone leading the prayer in front, there's uh, there's prayer rhetoric that's going on in front. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then also there are people who, uh, the participants are also um, uh, participating in that prayer and they're participating in every way possible. uh, For some of them, they're praying using scriptures, you know, Mm -hmm. the person in front is, is using scriptures. Um, they mimicking the person in front, 
Uh, they, people who are praying are responding to what is going on in front. There's music playing. There's movement. Uh, and again, that's not that, that hasn't been uh, talked about that much. But the prayers involve movement. Movement mm. is a way of knowing as well. You know, mm. movement, moving back and forth in certain places or rocking back and forth mm. um, as part of the prayer experience, which is together, uh, done together. There's vocalizing, you know, mm. in glossolalia and, you know, just yeah. exclamations and sounds uh, going on. So, so people are being socialized into Christianity uh, over there. If you've never been a Christian, and you're willing to learn, you, you have, uh, uh, you know, made a confession of faith. Mm. Prayer is one of those places I'll tell you to go. And when you go and do as people do, uh, you know, one becomes socialized into that experience. Another one is testimonies, stories, testimonies are essentially stories, mm. uh, st uh, stories about God's intervention into one's life. Mm. And so that uh, stories, testimonies, uh, you know, are an important way of socializing. And that's not unique to Pentecostals yeah. because um, um, East African revivalists used stories. The testimony was very central. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what did God do in your life? How did God... And people would often repeat their conversion story and then include different details each time mm -hmm. uh, about how, you know, their, their journey of faith uh, was continuing and that tradition of the testimony continued uh, in in uh, a student movements and it found its way into um you know Pentecostal pe Pentecostal ministry and so these all of these uh, have some connection with orality mm -hmm. um music is also another very important one which is very much like prayer and one of the things that I'm learning, um, you know, in my own research, and, and this is an area that I've delved into a little bit more, even from the book, is uh, that if we want to understand Pentecostalism and Pentecostal theology, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we need to do is, is to view their, um, uh, their, to, to view their experiences or their liturgical experiences as, as a, a system. Uh, you have a system view of 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 that of those experiences. So so uh, if one is a um, if one used a, a Lutheran rubric, uh, you know, Lutheran Protestant rubric, then the sermon is what would be the most important thing. And you would say, well, the sermon is a thing. And it, uh, you know, within the Lutheran tradition, the sermon was written. In fact, in in English language in Western cultures, you say, I'm writing my sermon. Um, and so it is a piece of literature that is then, you know, put together, um, you know, from a doctrinal position. Um, and But you can't study Pentecostals that way because the sermon isn't written per se. The sermon is spoken. It is felt. It is responded to. So it's, it is it is constructed with orality in mind. Mm. Um, and and the sermon is not the whole thing. If you looked at the sermon, there are many things you're not going to see. For example, um, how is the cross connected uh, to the person day to day life? The sermon might not do that, yeah. uh, but you find it in the prayer. Um, you'll find it in the song. And the song, again, if you employ a, a, a method, Methodist rubric, uh, Methodists um, kind of locked their, their, their theology in their music. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's historical, you know, with the Wesley brothers and so on. Uh, but but uh, but again, you can't come to the music and say, okay, these people's songs, you know, don't have the whole doctrine of the Trinity in each of their songs that they do. No, they don't, because uh, their way of knowing is very different. The song is repetitive. It has a beat to it. People move together. And so the moving together uh, involves a way of, of knowing. So so all of it is a system. So it fits. The prayer fits with the, with the um, song. It fits with the testimony. It fits with the music. And all of that happens uh, in each, uh, each weekend. Um, and sometimes in a weekend, you have two things going on. You have mm-hmm. the sermon, uh, the service on Sunday, which is a you know, might be a five or six hour affair, but then there's a prayer vigil mm, mm. that happens on Friday. And that is part of the continuous experience. Mm. Um, and so theology comes in through all of those. Now, in terms of catechism, coming back again to catechism, um, some churches have begun to write their own material from their own context. And so, you know, quite a number of churches, you know, to have developed their own material and developed their own system of socializing people uh, into uh into christianity and it has been interesting to actually see mm. some of those materials find their way back into you know through kind of re- a reverse uh discipleship uh migration to find their way back to north america so mm. uh um you know so so materials like mizizi who have found their way back into uh, Mizizi, which was written in a kind of charismatic Pentecostal church in, in Nairobi, has found its way back into, into the U.S. And hundreds of churches are now using uh, a, an adapted version of, mm. of Mizizi as, as a program known as Rooted. And it uses that kind of communal, oral um, you know, way of doing discipleship, which also works in... Um, in 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 literary societies because orality probably is the root you know where mm-hmm. we all came from uh in terms of our ways of knowing mm-hmm. yeah thank you that is fascinating i i'm always interested to hear of things from the global south coming up and impacting things in the global north just because that's not always what we hear about so thank you for highlighting that um i also appreciated that your book describes some of the ways of, or excuse me, some of the history of formal education in Kenya and identifies how both secular and Western-oriented Christian universities are not always ideal options for Kenyan Pentecostal leaders to go for pastoral training. Mm-hmm. So could you please speak to um, some of the reasons for that disconnect and what solutions uh, Nairobi Pentecostals have come up with to address it? Yeah. Um yeah, I, I think um, I'll mention just a, a few reasons why. Mm-hmm. I think the first one is uh, that the the content, the content that was designed for some of the, um, for the theology academy um, comes from a very different intellectual history. And, and so... When it comes, uh, when it is brought into into you know places, different places in Africa, uh, it is found to not be very useful. So, so some mm-hmm. of the some of the things, for example, people will be looking for uh, an understanding of of pneumatology. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does the Holy Spirit work? 
because because there's a there's a there's a there's a cosmology an underlying cosmology that God is present God you know what is seen what is unseen they fit together uh and and you know our world um is much more than what you can see what you can measure so it's kind of like a po- uh, uh, has a pre pre enlightenment view uh of the world and mm-hmm. it has uh, and and that that worldview, which which is um, which is an, analogous to the to the uh, New Testament worldview that Jesus spoke in, mm. um, is a worldview that still remains prevalent. And so, uh, a, a lot of the material from the from the uh, theology academy, particularly evangelical material, um, and you know denominational denominational um, schools. Uh, from the global north tended to have a very um you know content that does not take that into into account mm-hmm. and in fact in some places the way that content was taught was taught uh, in a way that demeaned um you know some of these uh, ways of 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 uh, looking at at the world and so naturally slowly by slowly there was an attrition of uh, of of confidence, mm. and so you find that uh, you know many people then say the you know seminary is not that important uh, because the seminary kills faith, it kills passion. Uh, people go in there on fire for the Lord, but when they come out, uh, they are no longer confident about uh, God's uh, the the imminent presence of the Holy Spirit, and so uh, so that's one thing. The content. The other one is the the cost. Yeah. I mean, it's just the this this is you know the proverbial soul's armor for David. It, it's it was it's big, it's clunky, it's mm. uh, uh, you know it requires certain books, it requires uh, someone to be removed from ministry uh, and to stay in that kind of to be sequestered in that monastery and uh and to be fed there they are not doing ministry they are not uh, doing anything and they are learning things that are not building their faith they are not uh, enhancing their sense of awareness of god's presence uh and then they come out of there not so much uh, excited about what is going on and they come out you know very poor you know, if they paid for themselves. In fact, some of these models uh, required a constant flow of resources coming from the global north in the global global south. Yeah. Um, again, you know, some some of the materials that filtered into the uh, into the universities, uh, into the theological schools, wasn't the best material. The best material tended to remain the global north. Mm-hmm. And the old material that you know was kind of phased out. That's that's the material that found its way mm-hmm. uh, into into some of these. And so, in that sense, it's also not cutting edge. It's not um, it's 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 not material that is uh, that is fully cognizant of the times that we speak in. So, so for that reason, um, the theological training you know has had especially in the last 20 25 years uh, has suffered mm-hmm. because you know even the resourcing of it yeah. uh, has gone down and many schools that were started with that model in mind no longer can uh, can be sustained mm-hmm. uh, and and so other other methods came up and and so one of the things that you find is that in a lot of these 
uh, ministries, the Pentecostal churches, there's a lot of uh, mentorship, a lot of, you know, people being carried, uh, you know, forth in terms of ministry, learning by the trade, being, you know, engaged and doing uh, doing mission. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them will start their own, you know, kind of Bible schools and train people from within. Mm -hmm. um, some of them will start uh, internship programs, mentorship programs, uh, mm -hmm. to kind of train people in ministry and to identify, single out and empower leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's uh, you know what what has uh, what has happened in terms of training. Thank you, uh, Dr. Mugambi, for for that uh, detailed answer. Now, segueing into thinking about um, before Kenyan independence, um, missionary churches in Kenya and elsewhere were fairly rigid in their polity and corporate worship. Mm. You know, and missionaries generally frowned on anything that could be called, you know, charismatic. Mm. Uh, leading up to the independence and afterwards, however, Kenyans have created spaces where, you know, spontaneity has taken a priority in worship. Mm. And you mentioned somewhat of that as well. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the ways that different Kenyan Christian movements, you know, prioritize spontaneity and mm. whether any struck a balance between structure and spontaneity. Mm. And why is that Pentecostalism and other charismatic movements, you know, garters, garnered so many members um, in mm. Nairobi as well? Yeah. Oh, well, those, those are big questions. <laughs> uh, let, <laughs> let me see what I can do with, yeah. uh, with a couple of them. I think... Mm. Uh, the Pentecostal pneumatology, what Pentecostal pneumatology does is that um, it, it provides um, two things that are kind of pulling, pull, they look like they're pulling in different ways, but they're actually not. Mm. Uh, one of the things, one side of that tension is that uh, Pentecostal pneumatology charismatizes, it, uh, it, it um, uh, democratizes the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, or our understanding of the, the Holy Spirit. Everybody can have the Holy Spirit. It's not just the person at the front there. Historic mission Christianity is very tentative about the move of the Holy Spirit. But uh, but Pentecostal churches uh, have have uh, um, an understanding that uh, they have a literal understanding of of what Jesus said. You know, when I go, you know, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Mm -hmm. They have a very little literal sense of that. Joel. Uh, a very, very literal sense of, of well, Joel said that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. This is all flesh. I'm part of all flesh. I can receive the Holy Spirit. So there's a there's a sense of 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 that understanding. So there's a there's a democratization of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, there is a. Uh, the the understanding that that the the move of the Holy Spirit is also mediated by leaders that God has quote unquote anointed, mm. and so people who people who uh, demonstrate that they have some sort of a, a charisma to lead or or gifting to lead um, uh, have uh, and and that gifting is linked with evidence of. God at work in their lives, uh, God at work um, in their lives. And usually that is through the miraculous. If someone is able to pray and then, you know, people find healing, pray, you know, demons, uh, people are people are, uh, are delivered from, from demonic activity. Uh, people are healed from, from physical, mental, 
uh, psychological um, you know illness the, then then if 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 someone is able to do that then they have a special uh, to use a term often using Catholic they have special grace. Uh, it seems like they have a special grace that they are able to uh, to use uh, for for purposes of, of of ministry. So so on the one hand you have the the mediator of God's uh, power or mm. God's uh, presence uh, in the in the man of God or woman of God, and then you have this other side of it that kind of links together with um, which is uh, the democratized Holy Spirit. Everyone has it. Everyone can have it. So those two are constantly kind of playing a dance together uh, in in Pentecostal Christianity, and that's that fits into the uh, into leadership. Mm-hmm. One of the best things that that comes out of that, uh, in my view, is uh, the role of women in mm-hmm. uh, the role of of women in the kingdom of god because if if the if the holy spirit is is democratized women you know women can serve children can serve or let me say young people can serve mm-hmm. um and uh, alongside old men so 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 that 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 has shifted everything so that um if you look you're looking for the sector where women are most involved in the most significant ways doing some of the most significant leadership roles mm. uh, you find that in pentecostal churches mm. uh and uh, that is often not in a there's no debate uh there as there has been you know historically in other parts uh, of the body of christ uh, that one is almost a given Mm-hmm. Um, especially in certain places, you know, places in East Africa, places in East Africa, um, West Africa as well, uh, you find that women can lead ministries. Women can be the, the primary, the apex leader uh, in their own ministry, can be a large ministry, multiple churches. Women can be bishops. Women can be, you know, all of that. Uh, and I think that's a very important uh, outcome mm-hmm. of that. Um I think, uh, you know, the structure and spontaneity, um, and and maybe this is what we haven't uh, talked about that in uh, in this talk. But but that whole um, dance between you know spontaneity, dance between mediation and mm. and democratization of the Holy Spirit. The inside there, there are many things that can go wrong. Uh, because that spontaneity uh, kind of delinks, uh, you know, the the emphasis on oral or on orality delinks mm. the Pentecostal Church from historical orthodoxy, mm. and so um, those of us who are in the in the Pentecostal charismatic movement can then become kind of like free ions, not very not very linked mm. uh, to to historic uh, to historic orthodoxy, and so. You know that's why you begin to find problems with doctrine, problems with theology, yeah. um, moral abuses. Um, you know all kinds of of problems that come with that. Uh, the other thing about the idea of the mediator, the the human mediator of of God's work. You know the man of God or the woman of God. Again, that that is really open to um, to abuse and excesses. And and so uh, those are some of the things that we see. You know, we see um, you know people uh, people taking advantage of of their congregations. Um, people 
you know, using uh, the congregation for their own ends and, you know, to draw, uh, to do, you know, funds towards themselves, to enrich themselves and so on. Now, that is not new in 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 the history of the church i mean the the this that very issue was the was was one of the fundamental issues in the causing the reformation so it's not mm-hmm. unique to african churches it's not unique uh it's not even unique to the catholic church uh or the church of the medieval times i mean paul actually does write about people who used uh, the gospel for financial gain. So, so it seems to be a historical thing uh, that is not particularly tied to uh, to particular denominations or particular places. Uh, but I will say that that um, because of the configuration and the unique contextual issues um, within and worldview and and the contextual issues found in Africa, um, there is a certain susceptibility. Uh, to those kinds of uh, you know theological issues and theological uh, errors. Um, the last point that I want to make is that some churches more that are more recent um, Pentecostal churches are very pragmatic and and tend to be very open to learning from the world yeah. uh, around them. And so there there is a category of Pentecostal churches uh, that are now much more aware. Uh, of mechanisms for structure, for, you know, kind of moderating the structure and uh, creating frameworks for accountability within the church to deal with some of these things that we're talking about. Um, And regulation in Kenya and in other parts of of Africa, regulation has begun to creep in to try and bring about uh, some sort of order uh, in what is otherwise a fairly chaotic Mm. um you know uh, environment yeah well thank you i know there's a lot to those questions so thank you for tackling them um so well so uh for our last question uh we wanted to speak to the way that traditionally in kenya people viewed time as being created in the present and extending into the past mm-hmm. um, and in pentecostal and evangelical christianity however uh, there's typically a greater emphasis on the future primarily mm-hmm. regarding christ's return mm-hmm. so historically have different charismatic and pentecostal groups gravitated towards one of these views of time and how has their sense of time impacted their approach to ministry social justice and evangelism mm-hmm. yeah um I, I kind of deal with that in the book and, and argue that that is one of the areas of translation where we see progressively, you know, with some of the earlier forms, you know, spirit roho Christianity, you find there is an, uh, in, you know, an idea of a telos, an idea of where we are headed. Mm. Um, uh, but that idea of a telos is uh, linked to a present uh, that is also still creating, you know, kind of creating history from, from this moment. And so in that sense, you know, it's kind of a hybrid view. Uh, and then you have with the Pentecostals uh, a very... Um, um, very vivid view of of the future starting, you know, close to now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's a, they because uh, they they do because of their understanding of of the New Testament, the role of the New Testament, uh, and their fairly literal engagement 
with with um, apocalyptic scriptures mm. uh they they have you know a sense of of uh you know the the end is very close yeah. um and so because of that they they you know mission is very important you know in evangelism and so they're uh, they're constantly evangelizing constantly doing mission constantly trying to bring about conversion and so on uh and then they you know, progressive Pentecostal churches, which are churches that uh, I talk about in the book using uh, Mila and Yamamori's uh, terminology, uh, these uh, are progressive in the sense that they they are open um, and think of social social justice, social engagement, um, engagement with with the different publics. Um, they they have a view uh, that that. Um, you know, Christ is coming. Christ is coming soon, uh, but we also have a responsibility to the now. We have a responsibility to the society now as we wait. You know, and they have a kind of a, um, a view that the kingdom is now but not yet, uh, and kind of leave that out um, and create fairly elaborate plans. You know, they have. You know, they they write out vision. They have mission. You know, if Christ doesn't come in the next five years, this is what we're going to do. If Christ doesn't come in the next five years, we want to try and grow to this uh, amount of giving so that we can do this kind of ministry. We can do this kind of church planting uh, so that we can, you know, serve this kind of people. We can disciple this this number of people and so on. Yeah, kind of very, uh, um, uh, uh, very practical way of of viewing the world, saying if Christ hasn't come, he needs to. When Christ comes, he needs to find us doing something. Uh, and so there's that kind of um, engagement with time. Mm. Uh, and, but I will say that that in the process of 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 doing that, um, I think people are kind of rallied into. You know that kind of engagement that rallied into, um, you know that is attractive for people who, who you know see, uh, see the world in those terms, and 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 people who are able to kind of um, process present and future in that sort of way, and I think that's the that's one of the innovations that Christianity brings into the primal African worldview, and that is uh, that you know. The, the future extends beyond the next few mm. you know weeks or months yeah. um and there's a, there's a future out there and there's something to uh, to live uh, to live out to but the different expressions of charismatic christianity process that in different uh, sorts uh, sorts of ways mm. Mm. thank you dr Mugambi, for for that detailed insight um as we really you know took a deep dive into understanding your work and into looking into, you know, the Pentecostal Pentecostalism, um, especially within the Kenyan context, within East African context. And as we head towards the end of the interview, Luke and I, uh, each of us have a question that we would like to ask you before we, mm -hmm. we conclude for today's interview. And first, my question for you is, um, what do you hope that students and scholars working on world Christianity will take from your book and you know what new doors for research would you say that your you know book opens up to um mm. so i think this book allows us to see 
pneumatic Christian, mm. pneumatic Christianity or Pentecostalism. Um, mm. Pneumatic Christianity is is a term I really like. Kwabena uh, Samuajadu uses. Um, the my hope is that someone reading the book is going to see uh, Pentecostalism as a way of thinking and living out Christianity, mm. uh, as opposed to a a denomination. I feel that. Uh, First of all, in Africa, denominationalism works differently. Uh, but but secondly, as a subset of that of that argument, I think uh, that Pentecostalism um, needs to be treated for what it is a way of of thinking and living out Christianity. And I think that I'm hoping that you know someone reading that book uh, begins to get a sense of that. I think that the second thing I hope the book does is that it helps people to to see this as a piece of literature mm. that uh, shows that Pentecostalism uh, it joins a body of of, of of scholars and research that has found that Pentecostalism is not this one thing that started in one place somewhere and moved out, but it is uh, it is part of Christian expansion and has different influences and has a kind of polygenetic, um, uh, you know, launch uh, or history. Um, And I think that's important uh, because um, it kind of shapes the discourse. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I try to do in the book is that, uh, and this is my last uh, third, third point for this discussion, is that uh, what I try to do with the book is I tried to um, dignify the study of of Pentecostalism in Africa. Mm. Um, And I tried to do what I could uh, to faithfully describe and to look into the history uh, of Pentecostalism and allow it to uh, allow that history uh, you know, to tell its own story. I think many times, you know, the history of the church in Africa is told from a certain perspective and and um, is a kind of exegesis of, of, of um, perspectives uh, that are put into it. And so uh, people come into the study of Pentecostalism in Africa already with an opinion about what the theology is, uh, where it stands within the, you know, the wider uh, body uh, of Christ. You know, come in with an uh, an opinion of the leadership, mm-hmm. an opinion of oh, so 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 the study comes, um, the studies come with a very, um, in a way that is not really um, helpful uh, for for the study. I I I would hope that uh, students will see um, in this book a way of viewing Christianities in the places where they come from. Um, in a different way, and to to ask themselves, uh, what are the operative epistemologies in this place? What are the intellectual histories in this place? What are the ways of knowing, ways of understanding? Uh, what are the key features in this place that can help us to faithfully tell the story of Christian expansion from the terms of those people in those different places? So I've tried to do that with Pentecostalism. Um, I think one one criticism of the book is that they said, well, the, the book uh, doesn't doesn't uh, do enough to criticize the failures in theology, to criticize the failures in leadership. The book doesn't do enough uh, to to call out 
um, the the moral you know failures of, of the book. Uh, and my argument is. Uh, most of the other books do that. Uh, that's something that is very, very well researched uh, in the public space, um, you know, in, in, and, and so um, this is not one of those books. This is not, this is not another of those books. Uh, this is a book that uh, kind of provides a basis uh, for better critique. I think critique is important. Uh, and I think these movements need to be critiqued, uh, and I do my own critique within within the within the book. Um, but but this book uh, wants to give a little bit more of a theological and academic engagement uh, with the movements to provide a basis for I think a more accurate um, uh, more accurate critique. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Excuse um, me. I definitely feel like you were able to get a lot of that done. So thank you for that. Um, and as we wrap up with this final question, we were wondering, uh, would you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and what you hope, uh, what you hope to work on next? Mm, okay. Um, yeah, so, okay. Qu currently, I'm just going to share just a few of those. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm involved in a number of things. I'm excited about um, a project that I'm I'm working on. It's going to end next year, mm -hmm. uh, a, a research deep dive study into communality in African urban Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm part of the Nagel Institute coho a cohort of researchers there who are researching, uh, engaging African realities. Mm. And uh, you know, I have a team of very gifted um, uh, core researchers uh, who we are studying um, with the with the Nagel Institute. We are studying co communality. Uh, what does what, what how does communality play itself out in uh, some uh, emerging ecclesiologies again from within Nairobi? Uh, so that comes to an end next year, um, and we are working on. Uh, on on data and analysis, an extensive ethnographic study, doing theology from the ground up, um, you know, using grounded theor uh, the theory and theology. Theology. Um, another project that I'm working on is uh, trying to outline Christianity in Nairobi. The book that that we've talked about outlines Pentecostalism in Kenya. Um, but if you visited the city of Nairobi. Uh, what are you likely to see by way of Christianity? What do you need to know? Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to write that book. You know, what do you need to know about Christianity in Nairobi? And so it's an exciting project. I'm working on it with um, with Mark Shaw, oh. and um, and uh, hopefully we want to give a snapshot of Christianity as we see it now. Um, that that anyone could pick up. You know, could pick up a book. You know, in in the uh, pick pick up a book in the bookshop, and if you read it. It's going to give you a sense of what you know Christianity looks like um, in Nairobi, uh, giving you a taste of places, names, churches, um, you know, history, um, and kind of melding uh, Christian life with with the ethos of the city. So that's an ex another exciting project. Now, with regard to my main research um, in terms of a book, the follow-up book, I'm working on a follow-up book where I take a thematic look at Pentecostalism in Africa through a world Christianity lens. Uh -huh. And this is where I'm coming from. Most studies that we have look at a particular aspect of Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we, we have... Um, uh, mostly the you know if it's a book or it's a uh, you know something it would be either descriptive mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have some good work done, you know, by Kobena Samuajalu does a fantastic job of doing some of the descriptive and, you know, theological engagement. You have Obu Kalu who wrote the classic, everybody must read this book, you know, kind of um, uh, introduction to Pentecostalism in Africa, fantastic book. Uh, we have Alan Anderson who has done some very, very important work uh, uh, on, on Pentecostalism in Africa, again, doing a bit of descriptive historical, um, you know, missiological work. Uh, and then we have others who uh, who've done uh, Nimi Wariboko also has done something uh, in Nigeria as well. Uh, we have people who've done work on uh, migration and diaspora Christianity. Uh, Prof. Adogame, you know, mm-hmm. you know, fantastic. You know, he's also done some work on Pentecostalism and he's done work on on diaspora Christianity, uh, migration. You know, having some of those world world Christianity. Uh, um, you know, discourses, um, mm-hmm. people like Jehu Hansils as well, yeah. um, who've looked. But I want to look at, at this in, in a different sort of way. I, I want to look at the different themes inside and ask myself, what is going on there? Mm-hmm. Um, and and see, can we find some patterns, some themes um, that that kind of string together the Pentecostal experience? If I went into an overnight vigil or I went into a service anywhere in Africa, Mm-hmm. Uh, that is Pentecostal. Uh, is there something that uh, are there some things uh, that will become apparent to me and see what threads run through these elements uh, of of uh, Pentecostal worship and Pentecostal ways of being? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think I think now is the time for that kind of book. Yeah. And and uh, I'm kind of working on <laughs> on that slowly, chipping away at it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, hopefully something will come out. Well, Dr. Mugambi, those sound like excellent and very fascinating projects. And we look forward to reading more of your works. And once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode in which we explored a spirit of revitalization, urban Pentecostalism in Kenya, written by Kiyama Mugambi and published by Baylor University Press in 2020. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi. And Luke Donner. And stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.